Corporate sponsorship of the Recon Havoc podcast is provided by Game Day Men's Health in Madison. Men, let's face it. We know you hate going to the doctor, but Game Day Men's Health in Madison isn't your average doctor. They get you in and out quickly with their simple, yet uniquely customized three-step process. Game Day Men's Health offers testosterone replacement therapy, ED, weight loss treatments, HGH peptides, vitamin wellness, and other top-of-the-line services specifically designed to help you be the best husband, father, professional, and man you can be. Your initial consultation and testosterone level test is free. Game Day Men's Health. Visit them online at gamedaymenshealth.com forward slash Huntsville and book an appointment or go by their office at 9238 Madison Boulevard, Suite 1300B in Madison. Game Day Men's Health. Call 256-850-1570. 256-850-1570. When you need to be your best, it's Game Day Men's Health. Recon Havoc. News, interviews, and more. We just reek of Huntsville Havoc Hockey. Welcome back to another Recon Havoc podcast. I'm Tim Lambert. Laura Pitts returns with another In the Slot segment, this week with former Channel Cats and Havoc forward Luke Phillips, who's also part of the organization's Icon series that started up this week. We'll get his story in a minute. Also, later on, we'll check out upcoming games and pertinent fan info as well. The Recon Havoc Podcast will be right back. The Recon Havoc Podcast. One of the worst feelings you can have is that of being stranded. Well, BT's towing, tire, and truck repair makes that a thing of the past with 24-7 towing services and roadside assistance in the northern Alabama and southern Tennessee areas. But that's not all. They also offer truck and trailer repair, mobile welding, brake service and repair, new and used tires, and other major and minor repairs. Their name says it all. BT's Towing, Tire, and Truck Repair. For 24-7 response, call 497-8234. That's 497-8234. BT's Towing, Tire, and Truck Repair. Got something to say? Put it on a t-shirt, or hoodie, or apron, or even an iPhone case. Just go to DaddyO'sCustomTees.com and make it happen. Look through their selection of ready-made designs, or make one of your own. Check out their special hockey designs, too. With Daddy-O's Custom Tees, you can truly have it your way. Look for Daddy-O's Custom Tees on Facebook, follow them on Twitter or Instagram, or go online to daddyoscustomtees.com. That's D-A-D-D-Y-O-S, custom, T-E-E-S, dot com. Daddy-O's Custom Tees, they've got your back or front. Athens Utilities comprises Athens Electric, Athens Gas, and Athens Water Services. Together, we are committed to providing reliable and affordable electricity, natural gas, and water and wastewater services. We operate as part of the city of Athens, and just like our city's motto of Athens is classic, southern, character, we believe in supporting what makes our community special. Call 233-8750, come by our office at 508 South Jefferson Street, or look for the link online at AthensAL.us. Let's go in the slot. Welcome back, Havoc fans and hockey fans alike who are listening to the podcast. Um, We're here for another show this week, and today I have former Channel Cats and Havoc player, um, Luke Phillips in the slot to chat about his career and more what he's been up to and what's kind of brought him back to the Huntsville area and Alabama for a little bit this um, past month. Luke played with the Huntsville Channel Cats during the 2003-2004 season and then after that the Channel Cats became the Huntsville Havoc. So he then went on to play three seasons with the Havoc before taking one season with the Knoxville Ice Bears. Um, and then right before retirement, he um, played in one game with the IHL League. Um, and since then, he's had quite a career and more. And all of that I want to get into and talk to him about today. But first, Luke, we're really happy that you're here. Welcome to our show. Thank you for stopping by on your trip into Alabama to chat with us. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. So, Luke, um, you've been down in Alabama for a few weeks now visiting um, from Canada. So do you get to come back to Alabama often or is this kind of a one time situation? I don't get to come back as often as as I would like. Uh, I try to make a point to at least once a year, make it back for a good long spell. My son lives down here, so I try to get back to him as much as, as possible. So while you're down here, I assume that you check out a little hockey, maybe, perhaps? 
yeah, go check out to see uh, how the game's improving and, and the goods and bads of it and uh, how much faster of a game it has become and how bigger the players seem to be now. You know, that's funny that you say faster and bigger players because that's the kind of common thing that I have heard throughout all of these different interviews that I've been doing with coaches, former players, current players, staff, um, you name it. Everyone talks about how much faster everybody skates and how much like bigger all the all the players are. Yeah, the, the speed is definitely noticeable. Uh, I'm not sure I could have used my, my wisdom wheels to, to keep up with them. Uh, but they definitely seem a bit bigger, which I would have loved because I like playing against a lot bigger uh, players. What do you think has led to this faster skating process? Just something that they're learning when they're children coming up in youth leagues or something different? I think that uh, anyone that watches the NHL, they kind of get a background on what the players go through to get uh, to to that level and the training that it takes. So I think players now from a younger age are a lot more focused on uh, the skill side of it, you know, the skating, the stick handling more so than uh, initially jumping into programs and systems. So I think they're putting in a little bit more effort than maybe someone in my generation would have, you know, we might've just gone off of whatever talents we might've had and then, you know, just worked hard. Whereas now they work hard from, from the get go and really put in the time and effort to, to become a good professional. If you'd done that as a young one starting out in the league, do you think your um, hockey um, career or ability would have been different, or or what do you think? Yeah, I kind of grew up with a system in Canada where it was you'd go to practice, you'd practice as a team, you'd, you'd work systems and plays that you'd want to work, and that was about it. Uh, whereas now there's a lot more emphasis on on you know practicing your stick handling, practicing tipping shots, and and where to shoot and how to tip. And kind of how to to break away from guys and make it more of a two on one situation. Uh, so I think that's a little bit more prevalent. And if I had a little bit more of that, I think I could have. You know, things might have been different. I think the biggest thing that held me back maybe was for the era that I played was my height. I wasn't typically a, a tall person. <laughs> that's five foot seven, five foot eight. If anyone asks. Um, so I think that helped me back a bit, but that also kind of gave me the fire to to show that I could play with the bigger, taller players. It's interesting listening to you talk about that because it's almost like precision now is like a key. Like it's always been key in any game or any sport to really hone in on those skills. But it seems like more and more that's what's kind of setting different generations of hockey players and teams apart is that that precision, um, that that attention to detail. Yeah, it seems that a lot of the plays that are almost common now are plays that our coaches would scream at us for even trying to attempt, you know, the, the, what looks to be a fancy pass or a dangerous play. Uh, now it's, it's more of a risk versus reward, whereas more it's, it's now so more rewarding because it's part of the system. Uh, I don't want to call it more of a European style, but a little bit more finesse uh, as far as puck handling and, and passes uh, than when we played, when we played, it was a, big part of it was dump chase, you know, bang bodies in the corners and hopefully they give it up or they get scared or they get tired of us hitting them. And that's when we create our opportunities. Whereas now it's, yeah, it's a lot more finesse, a lot more back passes and passes. You don't, you know, cross seam passes. And uh, we were, when I was growing up, it was pretty stringent on where you could pass and what lanes you could pass through. So they have a lot more freedom now and freedom to actually, you know, use their skill and, and play to their talents and their strengths. Well, it's interesting that you bring up um, how life was playing hockey growing up and stuff. And that's what I wanted to kind of start with today, really, was tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from. How did hockey kind of become a thing for you? Um, I know that I became interested in hockey in general just over the past um, three or four years. And so you weren't a player with the Havoc at the time that I kind of became finagled into all of this interest. So tell us for us new ones like me. A little bit about who you are and all those things. Yeah, hockey. I've loved hockey since I can ever remember. Uh, I'm pretty sure I, my dad had me in skates when I was probably close to two years old, just to get me, you know, to get the feel of them. Uh, when I was older, he'd make you make me and my brother and sister walk around the house without our with our skates on on the carpet, but without them tied up, so that you build strong ankles. So it was always, as a young boy too, it was my dad loved it. He played a bit. And we just wanted to, you know, do what 
he enjoyed doing. And uh, with, I had a younger brother, Tom, that played down here with me. And he's three years younger than me. So we, I always had someone to play with at home and just shooting the puck in the driveway and then going to practices and doing the skating and learning how to skate properly and all that. It was, it's more of a culture thing too, similar to what football I imagine is like down here where you grow up with it and everyone, you know, plays it. everyone, you know, watches it. It's one of the main topics, you know, when you go into work. So it was, it was kind of just, you know, we did that for fun and then we got really competitive with it and just fell in love with the game before we really knew any better. Growing up, did you have a certain team that you followed religiously that you just really poured yourself into? I mean, I know down here in the South, and when it comes to football, we have our, our teams that we faithfully follow forever. But for you, what was that, what was that hockey team? Yeah, I wish I could say that I was a hometown fan of, of the Vancouver Canucks, but to be honest, they break your heart so many times. Uh, it's kind of like the Chicago Cubs. Uh, but for, for, for me, the start was, uh, Detroit Red Wings, Bobby Prober and Stevie Eiserman. I mean, just seeing those guys, it, that's, plus they had the history, uh, with Gordy, Gordy Howe there. So, uh, that was probably my first major team. And a big part of it was in the nineties. My brother's favorite team was the Colorado Avalanche. And anyone that knows good hockey history is they had a bloody, bloody rivalry. So that was a bit of the big brother, little brother rivalry that extended through. How did that work in um in your household, knowing that you two were pretty opposite, especially when you guys played each other? A lot of punishment. We got we got sent to our rooms quite a lot, and it was usually because one of us would hip check or body check each other into the into the basement door, and then the dad would have to come downstairs and separate us. And I'd always have to get told to stop picking on my little brother, and I'd try using the excuse of I'm just trying to toughen him up, but he was already pretty tough himself, so oh, that's <laughs> he didn't funny. need much of my help. <laughs> so was was playing professional hockey always your end goal um or did you have something else in mind for a career it really wasn't until we started getting into the a little bit older before junior hockey you know about 14 or 15 years old and that was kind of the age when a lot of the people that weren't going to keep playing would would stop and start finding something else and I just had a bunch of people, adults, tell me that I was too small and too short to to really make a career of anything. So I took offense to that and made it my goal to pretty much prove everyone wrong that you can tell me I can't do something, I'm going to go ahead and do it then, <laughs> just, to, just to prove you're wrong out of spite. Uh, but yeah, no, I pretty much for us growing up, it was once you're done hockey, you get a job in the trades, you know, in a construction building, oil rigs, something that, you know, pays good and you can be home all the time. And when junior hockey was over and I was starting to look down that barrel of what am I going to do next, uh, I got lucky and uh, got invited to a, a tryout down in Odessa, Texas with the Jackalopes. And I, I spent a lot of that summer really thinking, like, how bad do I really want this? You know, it's it's a far ways away. It's, it's, it's not a cheap way to get there. And if you don't make it and you're there, how do you get home? Then what do you do? So I just kind of pooled all my resources and put my mental thought towards you're going down there and you're not coming back. You're going to make a team no matter what it takes. And if that doesn't work, then we'll worry about that. Overturn that stone when we come to it. But luckily I didn't have to for quite a few years after. So then take us now a little bit into your professional hockey career, um, where you started, kind of some of the stuff that happened along the way. And then how did you find yourself down here in Huntsville playing for the Channel Cats in that last year that they were a team? Well, yeah, like I said, I, I took a five-day Greyhound from Vancouver, British Columbia to Odessa, Texas. And it was many, many hours and many sleepless hours on that, not, uh, not really knowing the the areas or where exactly I was going. But yeah, I ended up in Odessa and I got there and I had broken my leg uh, two months prior playing summer baseball. So I was not really in the best of shape, which as some of my former players would say, I never really was. <laughs> but so I went into that and just did as best I could. Uh, after final cuts, I was still there for another two weeks. Then they decided to go with a, a more notable veteran. And uh, they suggested I go home and play a men's league and maybe come back the next year. And I had to explain to them kind of, I lived out in, in the sticks. So there really wasn't a men's league team near me. 
So the coach there pulled out, it was called the Big Black Book of Hockey, and it had every hockey team with their front office, phone numbers, faxes, emails, and all that. He pointed me to the SPHL, SEHL back then and said, just start calling teams here. So I talked to two or three teams that would not even put me in touch with the coach. And then I finally got to Huntsville and they said, nope, we'll give you Gibby's number right away, uh, John Gibson. So I called him and talked to him. And luckily he knew the coach in Odessa at the time. I believe he coached Gibby in university. So they had somewhat of a rapport. He told Gibby, you know, you'll love this kid. He, you know, he's, he's gritty, but he has some talent. So Gibby, when I talked to him, he said, get up here, you know, see what you got. Looking forward to it. And from then it was, uh, calling home to mom and dad to try and get enough money rounded up for a plane ticket to get from Odessa, Texas to Huntsville, Alabama. And when I got here, I didn't know what to expect. And I got picked up, uh, by a local, Scott Walton in a, in a van. It was a team's equipment van. And as we're driving, I'm, you know, it's 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night. I'm still trying to get used to my surroundings. He all of a sudden says, you know, in that very Southern accent, Hey, you want to see something? And then he pulled off onto a dirt road. And I'm like, Oh no, this is not going to be good. But l- luckily it turned out it was the space and rocket center. And all I, I was just thinking like, why is this guy showing me this now? I just want to get to my hotel room. <laughs> I was more scared then I think than I was in the Greyhound bus because <laughs> The Greyhound bus, there was other people on there, but it was just me and Scott at the time, and I didn't know him that well. That is so funny, especially um, that was your first probably impression of anything related to the state of Alabama. <laughs> that was it. Yeah, I was I was hearing the the Deliverance song in my head, thinking like, "Am I gonna what, what do I have to do here? Like, how am I gonna defend myself? He has all my sticks on the top of the van. I can't just go out and grab them." That is so funny. So. Apparently it works out. You, you don't get, you know, kidnapped or, or, or mutilated from yeah. your ride from wherever, but you end up finding kind of a, a pulse, um, I would say in Huntsville in general. And so that first year that you're here, um, you know, you played for the Channel Cats and that was their last year, um, before everything kind of changed up and became the havoc. Tell us a little bit about what it was like being a part of the Channel Cats era. I was it, looking back, it was a great honor because knowing the storied history they have, they have a, a Central League championship and to know they had played for years prior. And I came in not really knowing that history. Uh, yeah, I, I got one quick skate in before, uh, before going to, to Knoxville, uh, for training camp or for preseason games. And I think it was, uh, Mike DeGurse was coaching at the time while John Gibson and our back and our goalie were scouting in the stands. And I think we, it was just a bit of a mess, the warm up, like nobody could make a pass. I'm thinking like, what am I doing here? And then Coach Coach DeGurth at the time said, I don't want anyone stepping out on that ice unless they're going to fight. And I think I was the first one over the boards because my thinking was, I'm going to please the coach. So I got in a fight right away. That was my first shift. And then as soon as I got out of the box, I got jumped again. So there was another fight. And then in preseason, it was two fights and you're done. So as they were playing the third period, I was in the, the lobby uh, up in Knoxville on the on a payphone asking my parents, like, saying, I think I have to get a bus back home because I didn't get to show him anything. And in typical Gibby fashion, he let me stew on that for about two or three days and then said, hey, kid, you got a pen? Because you're going to be signing a contract here. Just keep doing what you're doing. So it was it was having a bunch of the older guys there that had played through that that Channel Cat era and the mentality that the team was built behind. You know, our goal scorers are going to be tough, and our tough guys are going to be goal scorers. And that was, it was a pretty good recipe. So do you have any memorable moments from that year other than the fighting and trying to figure out, you know, am I going to get to stay or not? I can only imagine though, as a side note, your parents have probably just paid all this money to get you here. And now they're having that phone call from you, maybe having to get you back. I can only imagine that as a parent, especially during that time frame um, of getting that. But what are some memorable moments that you can remember during that Channel Cat year? Yeah, I remember when I told my mom I had she she was on speakerphone back home uh, that I might not be you know I might be coming back and I could hear my dad in the background yelling better start walking. So I just remember thinking, okay, if I didn't show him in, in game in the game, I'm going to show him practice how hard I can work and how hard I can uh, I can play. 
Uh, and some of the memorable moments was probably uh, not even my first game as a pro. It was our, our first home opener in Huntsville. And I think we had five or 6,000 fans. And it was, at least it seemed that way. And just the, the electricity that it brought, the, the ice, it seemed, the lights seemed brighter. It just kind of was one of those arrival moments like, all right, you've, you've taken the step to where you want to be. Now let's keep going from here. And I had to fight the home opener because that's, that's what you do on home openers. You, you give the fans something to cheer out about right away. And I think it was almost right off, well, off my first shift. So that was very memorable. Obviously winning the championship, uh, my first year was, was completely amazing. Like I, I didn't even have words for it. It was just a blur of emotions and, and cheers and, and, you know, hugging your buddies, which is now pretty much like family because of the wars and battles that you've gone through throughout that year. And that, that first year too, I think there was, only four or five teams in the league. So when we played Knoxville, you'd fight a guy in Knoxville and you might've fought them, you know, the 15th time that year. Cause it just, it was the same teams over and over and over, but it was, it was pretty great experience. And it really showed me how, how great Huntsville's fans were because right from the get go, they were there, they're supportive, they were loud. And, you know, when they see it outside of the rink, even though hockey wasn't that big at the time, the true fans really let you know that, hey, we see you, we appreciate you, and we, we like what you do. You know, it's interesting you bring up the fan base, and that kind of transitions me to asking you some questions. The following three years that you stayed in in Huntsville, you know, the Channel Cats are no more. We're now transitioning into this Havoc era. Um, before I ask you about that, I'm curious what your um, what your perspective is on the fan base between the channel cats and the havoc like did it continue over did it grow more i mean we i know we average about 5000 or more um attendance every week at our at our hockey games but still back then how did that kind of fan base carry over from your perspective as a player it's it's a long time ago uh, but i feel looking back uh, i think as soon as we as far as the team and the players from one year to the next, it was just kind of business as usual, maybe with a little, you know, added pressure, if anything. But the fans, I feel it it grew, substantially grew. As soon as Keith Jeffries kind of took over and took the reins, I feel the game, it kind of exploded because all of a sudden we were getting advertising on TV. We were going on, you know, the local news stations to do the weather, uh, just give updates and, you know, kind of explain what hooking was, what slashing was, how to draw a good power play breakout and into their zone. So there was a lot more exposure. I remember at, uh, I think it was Panoply. There was a bunch of people, you know, we'd have a mascot kind of go out and people didn't know who it was. Well, that was your chance to, to kind of meet who the, who they were and then get people more excited. And there was just more, more hoopla and buzz around the new team. So, and we were excited as players as well because unfortunately we were no longer channel cats, but this was almost a, a, a new team that we could build a new identity around based off of kind of the experience that we had already had before. And the players that did come back that were part of that championship team were pretty key players of the habit going forward, like myself, DeGurse, James Patterson, uh, Dan Butella, especially me and him were only a year apart and we were, we were the young guns. So it was, it was exciting for us to know that we're going into this new chapter so early into our careers, but and going to be a big part of, you know, hopefully making the havoc into a championship team and, and into winning ways. And I feel like we got a good start on it at least. Um, So that, that kind of leads me to this next question about when the havoc, become, when the team becomes the havoc, what did it feel like for you to kind of be, you're still, you're still the hockey players in Huntsville, but now you have a different look this year. And you kind of touched on that about being able to reinvent yourself Um new players, new people coming in. It seems like it was a very positive change at that time and that players that you've mentioned seem to really um, appreciate that and kind of embrace it. Yeah, I think we thrived a bit more as players uh, under the havoc because uh, with the Channel Cats, you know, we didn't have the greatest track suits. Stick limit, uh, the stick budget was very limited. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't what, when the havoc kind of took over, it was, you could get, everyone could have at least a couple sticks, which is crucial. People could get skates. We could get the equipment that we needed. We got a lot of the staff that we needed to, to do a, a team. We actually got, you know, 
more than two trainers and a, or a trainer and a, and an equipment guy. We had a trainer or two, an equipment guy with the, a, a, a assistant, Kendall Birdwell. And just, you know, we got a little bit more of what really felt me coming from Odessa. I had a bit of a glimpse as to what, what it was. So the havoc started to really go in that direction where it was, you know, we'd have, uh, energy bars and, you know, Gatorades and, and you know, ready to go coffee, ready to go. We had a TV with a, uh, a, a couch in there to kind of watch TV, you know, so you could hang out there and kind of just be more at the rink more often rather than just showing up to practice, putting your time in yeah, and then going home, you kind of hang out at the rink a bit more and talk with the front office staff because there was more front office staff involved and, you know, not only just managing the team, but getting radio going, getting an announcer, and then getting, you know, the word out to the public that it's a new team and a new time. So a lot more people involved, which was really nice. And you didn't feel like you had to get out of yeah. the arena right after. Well, and it's interesting, too, to hear you talk about it. I'm curious about your perspective now after since, we're, you know, 20 seasons later with the Havoc, um, you know, you were there for the first three seasons, really. And now you look back on it. I mean, were you ever, can you ever say you expected it to be like this or this is what you thought the Havoc organization would end up being? No, I never thought it would be like that. I thought if they can get a Jumbotron where, you know, you can have a, a bit of a replay here and there, that would be phenomenal. And then they got that and I was instantly envious. And to see where it's at now, I mean, I took a video, I think it was last week, just of the arena. Uh, and all the lights were out and people had their cell phone lights going and just the electricity was there. And I sent it to a friend of mine back home and they were asking, you know, are you at an AHL game or an East coast game? And I said, no, no, this is, this is where I used to play. And they, they couldn't believe it. So if, if you don't know any different, like the, the play is fast, it's good hockey to watch Could be a little bit rougher. <laughs> That's only my prerogative. Um, but yeah, they're doing an amazing job. It's, it's like you're going into a top tier, uh, organization and, and really putting on a good show for everyone. So even if you don't like hockey, you're still going to get a lot of entertainment packed into a hockey game outside of the game itself. And I heard you, well, I heard you mention a few minutes, minutes ago about different things that started happening when it comes to havoc, you know, you're getting advertisements, you're doing things. You mentioned going on the air and sharing the weather forecast. <laughs> what is that about? Uh, yeah, we, uh, I can't remember which one. There was a couple, at least one specifically might've been WHNT where uh, I think it was around noon time. Uh, a player would go and they'd not do an interview so much as just be like, this is a, a havoc player. Can you explain to us? They're going to explain what slashing is, or can you can you draw up a, a play that you guys might do? And interesting, we, went, we did that we did that for a while until unfortunately uh, one player uh, named Trevor Krasowitz, I believe it was, uh, he drew up a play for a power play where you'd break out and he used a whiteboard. And unfortunately, by the time the play was done being drawn, it looked like a anatomy <laughs> of a of a of a male. Let's just say that. So that we got a. We got PP slot for that. And shortly after that, I don't think we went on the, on the news for the weather updates anymore and explaining the game, but just things like that was, was, you know, I didn't see that anywhere else where you could go into, you know, a restaurant to eat and hey, there, there's, is that you on TV? You know, doing a recap of the game or you go for a pint after and someone recognize you off a, off a news report. That was, that was pretty surreal for me. And, and I think the players really, really enjoyed that. Okay, well, this is where I, I say to all the powers that be that listen to the podcast in the front office that we need to do that again. Just maybe leave the whiteboards out and the drawings, right? The the pictionary okay. part of it. Uh, but I think that would be a really cool thing to bring back uh, to have the we have the um, weather forecast during the game. But it would be kind of neat to have a player do it. So Dom, um, Kyle, all you guys out there, you really should push that in to the front office and tell coach and. Mr. Jeffries, that we need to have a, a a recast of the weather from way back when. But that is a funny story. I'm glad that you shared that um, with me right now. Um, so the next thing I'm curious about is tell us about being a Havoc player. You said things changed. Things got, you know, things were a lot more involved. You had three years here. What was life like as a Havoc player in that season? I don't think I could have asked for anything better. It was, you had that 
kind of little taste of being a bit of a celebrity, you know, more so than the average person, just, you know, from people knowing you and you going out and maybe someone buys you a, a lunch or a couple of wobbly pops after a game. So that, you know, recognition was, was really something else. And the team kept getting better and better um, along with the organization. So it felt, it made, made you want to work a lot harder to, to be here and to, to not only be a havoc, but to represent the havoc. I bled the, the red and black for, you know, he said three seasons, but even to this day, I still, I still feel like I'm, it's, it's home to me. Do you have any memorable moments or um, games or players or things that you can recall from those three years that really continue to stand out in your life? Yeah, I remember, uh, I think it was our first year Havoc. We were on a 10-game heater, and we were in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and Fayetteville got really tired with us beating up on them. And so they brought in a bunch of tough guys from the Quebec League, and – we had, I think it was six fights in the first seven seconds of the game, which we all won. And then we had our goal scorers go out there and say, all right, well, we're going to keep doing this if you want to keep sending guys. And sure enough, they stopped sending guys. And then we, we won that game, but then we lost the next game. And uh, the owners actually took us out to celebrate because it was such a, a good feat at the time. So that was definitely a memorable game. Um, this wasn't specifically in a game, but I remember – one of our players, Dan Buccella, somehow started doing the Cupid shuffle uh, during a, a TV timeout or something, and then that turned into a trend, and then he would do it all the time. And then at the end of the game, he come out with a couple players, and they do that Cupid shuffle song, and that that really went nuts. That's that stuck with me. And you and Dan were pretty pretty close. Yeah, we were pretty close. He was my my second year here, so my first year havoc. Uh, we were both roommates, which I guess they thought putting the two youngest guys uh, in the same room was smart. So we, we both showed up really eager to play. So we got to our, our, our apartment before they had any furniture or utensils or anything in there. So we essentially sat in the living room floor, throwing rolls of toilet paper into the ceiling fan for, <laughs> for two days and then going down to Walmart to play in the little arcade they had there on, on South Parkway. And that we were completely content with that. And Dan was just such a young spirited young man that just had like he was had infectious energy uh, that he just brought that every time you went anywhere with him so it was great to room with him because we could kind of go through it uh together i was a year older but by no means more mature so we had a really good group of guys a solid core around us we'll be back with more of the reek and havoc podcast Time now for the Huntsville Havoc Pick of the Pack, a weekly spotlight from head coach Stuart Steffen. Doug Elstam, kind of a second-year guy, took last year off, but again, a little bit of experience, so he was a good kind of late find, signed him late in the summer there. Again, really, really skilled player, got some good offensive abilities, skates really well. You know, he's done a great job carrying the puck to the neutral zone for us and creating some offense, obviously, the one weekend. Um, you know, had a really big weekend there against Pensacola. The home opener there had the hat trick and stuff like that, and I think he's kind of quickly become a fan favorite here at home so again i hope to bring a little bit of offense to our lineup and and uh you know a little bit of experience and you know he's got a little bit of jam in his game too which is kind of nice the Recon havoc podcast will be right back men let's face it we know you hate going to the doctor but game day men's health and medicine isn't your average doctor they get you in and out quickly with their simple yet uniquely customized three-step process game day men's health offers low t ed and weight loss treatment along with hgh hormone pellet and testosterone replacement therapy among their services specifically designed to help you be the best husband father professional and man that you can be without synthetic hormones and your initial consultation and testosterone level test is free game day men's health visit them online at gamedaymenshealth.com forward slash huntsville and book an appointment or go by their office at 9238 madison boulevard suite 1300 b in madison game day men's health call 256-850-1570 256-850-1570 when you need to be your best it's game day men's health want to howl with the havoc this season now's your chance from applebee's tailgate talk and the Recon havoc podcast just go to wreakinhavoc.com and click on howl with the havoc to register and listen to tailgate talk on saturday mornings as we announce the winners of huntsville havoc tickets 
Howl with the Havoc this season from the Huntsville Havoc, Tailgate Talk, and the Reekin' Havoc podcast. Hey, this is Sainatkevich here, and you're listening to the Reekin' Havoc podcast. Salut, je suis Sainatkevich, puis vous écoutez le Reekin' Havoc podcast. So the other thing that I want to get into as well is when it was suggested to have you come on and they were kind of sharing a little bit about you, um, one of the specific things that they mentioned was your high end amount of penalty minutes that you have um, acquired during your time um, in Huntsville. In fact, um, with the Channel Cats that season, you had 275 penalty minutes that whole season and then other reports that I found combined all of your penalty minutes during your entire time in Huntsville for Havoc and Channel Cats is almost a thousand. I think it's like 994 minutes. Um, and then one season of the Havoc, you had 396 minutes. So it seems like you really enjoyed, um, the fight and putting the, throwing the gloves down. So I wanted to chat with you a little bit about that, that. Yeah, I think just channel or just havoc. I think I had close to fourteen hundred penalty minutes, and then you, the two seventy five with the channel cats. Yeah, uh, that is kind of uh, comes out of my upbringing in hockey. When I played junior hockey, if you're down two or three goals and it's a minute or two left to go in the game, and you know you're not going to win, you grab someone and you thump them just to kind of you know give the crowd something else to be excited about. Like you're already losing, you don't want, you know you want them to come back to the next game give them something to be excited about. So I think the first, well, most of my career, probably I had that mentality of, I have what's known as LMS, little man syndrome. So I love fighting the bigger guys because they thought they were always going to win. And sometimes they sort of did. Uh, but most times, you know, I held my own and I, I really loved that. Uh, the true competition between two individuals, uh, you know, the stand in front of each other and have a punch in the face contest, uh, you know, you want to, you want to be the last one standing in that. And when you do it at home in front of these Huntsville fans, which are just amazing, uh, they really make it feel like you won, even if you might have lost. So they really appreciate that. So realizing that I realized that pretty quickly, uh, into my career down here, I realized that, uh, some hockey fans down here watch hockey for the same reason people's up in Canada watch NASCAR. I watch NASCAR to watch the crashes. A lot of people in Huntsville watch hockey to watch the fights. Yeah. So knowing knowing that they love that, I added that to my game to kind of, you know, help help me stay longer. So is fighting always, I guess, this this pump up the crowd, we have nothing to lose kind of mentality, or is it also a strategy in the game? Because I feel like sometimes I'll watch and this is hockey in general you know, we need to make some play or, or if we both, if we both fight, if I can get somebody to fight, we're both in the penalty box, you know, then they're all a little bit less on the, on the um, playing field with the ice. So is it game strategy sometimes, or is it really just a mixture of both? Well, I think that's what is so amazing about fighting in hockey is that it has so many different facets to it that relates directly to the game. You know, if you're, if you're down a couple goals, you can maybe grab someone, get in a fight, and as long as you don't lose, that can help build momentum uh, as well. A lot of times it's it's pure emotion where two guys are battling really hard and then it just you come to blows. That's always great, too, because not only does it, you know, build momentum, build excitement, but it shows real passion in the game. And, yeah, sometimes, uh, I mean, hockey, the fights we used to use it for more so intimidation so that people that, you know, teams that might play tough in front of their home fans when they come into Huntsville, we're going to remember how you played at your barns. We're going to either try and, you know, get you to not play that way, or you're going to make you answer the bell if you step into our barn, because our barn was sacred to us. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of different ways fighting can be done. Uh, but a lot of it was, I mean, and as far as, you know, pre thought out thoughts, we did have some fights before face off. You knew that you were going to go someone, but that did not by any means make them, you know, less fake. You were, you weren't necessarily trying to hurt the person, but you don't want to look like a fool, especially at home. I mean, you never want to lose a fight. 
Well, and also I often wonder this perspective too is, you know, sometimes fighting works to your advantage, like we said, and other times it might be a disadvantage, maybe at the wrong time in the game when there's not, you know, there's not enough time left in the game for us to be losing a player on the ice right now for something um, that could cost or whatever. So, and I don't, and I wouldn't sit here and say that you guys pay attention to that because um, you're kind of, like you said, caught up in the emotions, but um, can you talk about, or can you recall any of those times when maybe the fighting was really great for you, but it might not have been the best moment for the team? I can actually tell you a time where it wasn't good for me or the team. <laughs> we were, uh, we were planning Columbus and I think we were up five to two. So it's a road game. You just, you get up and you just try and run the clock out. You still play hard, but you don't try and, you know, poke the bear. And their captain, Craig Stahl, came up to me and said, we're going, we're going. And I kept looking at the bench. There's video of it somewhere. I'm looking back at Gibby to say, like, you know, to give me the go-ahead or not. I didn't really see him, so I thought, all right, we'll go. We went. You know, it wasn't a bad fight. It was a long one. Um, but that essentially, because it was in Columbus's barn and Columbus's captain did it, that started to build momentum for them. And sure enough, they they walked back and and tied the game and then ended up winning in overtime. And I remember being in the shower, just had my head down, knowing that, like, that that pretty much turned the tide. And I was lucky enough to have a good captain and Mike DeGurst to come over to me in the shower and, you know, put his arm around me and say, you know, it's, it's all right. That's why you always look to the bench. If you don't look to Gibby, you look to me. There's, there's a time and a place for the fights. You've now learned precisely when not to do it. <laughs> so it was a hard lesson to learn because the, the one thing you don't want, especially when you fight is to have it cost the team and then have the team upset with you just because, Sometimes it can be a selfish act. And in that case, it, I guess you could say it was because there was no benefit to our team. There's sometimes a benefit to a fight, like you said. And sometimes there's just, there's no reason to. A lot of times the hardest thing I had to, to learn was, especially when we were at home or even on the road was a game was a blowout and the other team wanted to fight. I always looked at it like, Oh, someone wants to challenge. But then I had to really learn to look at the clock, look at the time that's left and look at the situation and realize, like, how does this benefit the team? And did you ever have any really noteworthy fighting injuries that happened as a result? Did broken nose uh, or something? We were in Knoxville. And I think we were up six or seven, two. And they had a real tough guy in Jeff Hansen that wanted to fight. And Gibby kept saying, no, 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 no. And after the guy kept following me, I was like, ah, maybe he doesn't really mean no. So we had a pretty good fight, but. I remember uh, because we had fought Knoxville so many times that year, I got him confused with a different player who was left-handed. So I was throwing lefts, thinking the other guy was throwing lefts. Well, this Jeff Hanson had a had a hammer of a right-handed fist. So right as I realized this is the wrong guy, I saw his right fist coming in. It hit me super hard. I don't. I didn't go down. I went to the box. I remember sitting in the penalty box wondering, how did I get here? I was just in a fight. And then I remember stepping off the ice in Knoxville. And the first step I took was the last thing I remembered. The next thing I remembered, uh, <laughs> I was on the bus in Huntsville uh, getting off at the arena with a concussion. And then having Gibby say, like, again, this is why you got to pick your spots. That is too funny. And, um, you know, when I think back on you telling that story, I often wonder if, um, you know, how has this whole process of fighting changed over the years? I mean, can you remember – or from what you see now, is it the same? Do the players do the same stuff? Um, is it just as, you know, in your face or have it kind of been lessened? I know during the COVID year, they would not allow anybody to fight. And that was really frustrating to us as fans, um, wanting to see that happen. Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely different. Uh, I've only seen one fight since I've been down here. It was, I believe it was number 78 for the Havoc Reggio. Reginato, yeah, Cole's our, yeah. I mean, Cole and Dominic, those are our two top fighting people. Um, it's funny, when I interviewed Cole over the summer, um, one of the fan questions was about, can you quit? Somebody said, are you going to be good this year and not fight? And he just kind of smirked. So, yeah. <laughs> not always up to us. <laughs> it depends on how the other team acts. But, yeah, I think it's it's a little bit different maybe now. as It's, it's definitely less frequent. Um, the one thing I don't like is that if – and this is just a personal trait of mine is that when you fight someone and everyone's lovey dovey and patch each other, good job on, you know, when the fight's over, when we fought, it was, you, you fought for a reason and you want to make them hurt and think about what they did to not do it again. So 
a little bit too much lovey-dovey after the fights now. It doesn't happen every fight. Um, but the one I saw uh, was 78 there. Yeah, he uh, it, was, it was a passionate fight. He was mad. It was a real fight. And there wasn't any patting on the back after and saying good job, but it was you fight, you go to the box, and I'm I'm sure he's probably going to try and go on again the next time uh, those two teams play. And what's so funny about that? I remember we were in the stands, um, my husband and I were, and we had brought some friends with us to the game. They're brand new to hockey, you know. They're getting into it, and we in the whole game, we said he's going to fight somebody. It's coming. We don't know who it's going to be, but I can tell. And so when it happened, they were like, all it was the, and they were that, um, those, those people that we brought with us, we can't wait to see a fight. You know, they're completely new to hockey and their whole perspective is kind of like what you're saying with you in Canada and NASCAR was you're expecting, you know, something to happen. So that, that definitely holds true because they were really looking forward to seeing a fight and they didn't get one the first night that we were there. And then the second night we brought them, then they got that fight with Cole. And so they were really, they were into it at that point. That was, that was the heart of it. So Yeah. And that's why fighting is such a good entity in the game, because even if you're losing, there's the possibility that a fight could happen. And if you're a season ticket holder and you, you know, there's a player that, that, that not only fights, but fights fairly frequently, whether he does good or bad, you know, that every game you go to, to watch, there's a possibility that there's at least one guy, you know, that's out there looking or that has the capability of doing it. Yeah. So it kind of makes a little, adds a little bit more to the game without actually, you know, necessarily adding. You just know it's, you know, there's a hockey game going to be played. You hope there's a certain amount of goals and you hope there's a fight or two. Uh, in most cases, you, you definitely usually get the goals. And if a fight comes, that's almost just the cherry on top, as long as your team wins. <laughs> <laughs> that's the whole, that's, that's the best part of it is when the team wins and that fight happened. Um, so when you look back on your life and you look back on your hockey career, what do you feel that that whole, that whole moment of hockey really taught you in life and, and prepped you for? I mean, what, what do you take away from all of that? Uh, amazing friendships. Mostly and how, you know, to treat people and how people can treat you. Um, yeah, it, I think hockey taught me structure and, you know, how to work as a team and how to look at, you know, certain plays or work even uh, from other people's perspective. Because you might see it one way, but then you might have a bunch of guys on the team that be like, no, no, this is how I see it. So that definitely helped correlate into real life, as I call it, uh, away from the game. But yeah, that camaraderie and those, you know, friendships that you'll have forever. I have, you know, four or five guys that I played with and we went through battles with and I consider them brothers and I'll probably be friends with them to the day we die. So what has life been like since hockey? Um, are you involved in the game at all anymore? Um, tell us a little bit about what, what you've been doing since then. I was in a uh, seven years ago, November 2nd this year, actually, I was in a near fatal car accident. Um, I kind of broke every bone in my body possibly and punctured some organs and tore a bunch of stuff up. So I've pretty much spent the last six years or so, you know, in and out of hospitals and having surgeries and trying to get everything kind of patched back up and back into, I've learned along the way that, you know, I wanted to get back to, you know, quickly as possible back to normal working order. And it's taken me a long time to realize there is no more normal. There's going to be a new norm. So I've been mostly focusing on that, you know, focusing my body and my mind, getting everything in, in, t- in, in packed, if you will. Uh, and last summer I, you know, I was, I kept pretty busy, uh, back home. So getting really, you know, to a good place mentally and physically and looking to eventually, uh, make Huntsville my full-time home again. I'm looking to come back obviously more often than I have been, you know, every three to four months if possible. Yeah. But eventually I want Huntsville again to be my full-time home. But, you know, my parents are getting older and, you know, I like being around them and spending the time with them while we have it still. Yeah. But, you know, down in the future, definitely want to be back down here. I want to be closer to my son too. And, you know, I have some friends back home and and family, but a lot of my real good friends, uh, you know, are down here and, you know, they always invite me out to do things, go to barbecues, stuff that just doesn't normally happen back home. And I want to also, before we kind of get to our last question of this little, you know, chat here, 
you know, there was a tragic situation that happened a few weeks ago with a former NHL player, Adam Johnson, um, when he was in that um, situation on the ice and he got cut to the neck. And so um, I've seen a lot of hockey players in leagues kind of start implementing or trying to test out this net guard um, <clears throat> preventative measure. And so I was curious as a former player um, of the game, Especially at a time when it was probably a little bit more scrappy, there was a there was a lot less, I guess, um, rigor and rules back then. Um, what is your thought on the net guard process? Like, what do you think about it? Uh, was it an option that you guys had when you were playing? Um, what do you think about that? No, it definitely wasn't an option when we were playing. And to be completely honest, if it was an option, I wouldn't have taken it, and I don't think a lot of other players would have either. Uh, what happened with Adam Johnson was such a fluke and just so tragic. Um, but I don't necessarily personally think it was so much the lack of equipment that did it. It was more or less the, the player that ended up hitting them having lack of control of their body. I mean, I don't know if anyone's seen it, but the Adam Johnson crossed the blue line standing up and he still got a neck across his, or, a, you know, skate across his neck. So the player that had escaped that high, you know, maybe teach, teach how to get hit or throw a hit a bit better. Yeah. But I think it's, if someone feels some, you have to feel comfortable out on that ice. I know when I was playing, they started bringing in the mandatory uh, visor rule and I wasn't a fan of that. It's, I totally understand why they have it, but I was against the visors because I felt they were bringing that in because they were trying to weed out some of the fighting and we were trying to make everyone understand if you have the fighting, It'll deter guys from getting their sticks up because, you know, they'll get their ass beat if they keep doing it. Whereas the neck guard one, it's one of those, if you're comfortable wearing a neck guard, then absolutely wear it. You got to feel safe out there to play the game that you play. But to make it mandatory, I think is a mistake because how many wrists have got kind of cut and there's no wrist guards. You know, there's so many spots on your, but the back of your legs, you know, there's been multiple players that have their Achilles stepped on. And, you know, there's no padding for that. It's, it's, it's whatever you're comfortable with, but if neck guards became mandatory, I, I don't see that being helpful in a sense because, you know, one incident happens and then you, there's been well over a hundred years of hockey. And this is one of the, I believe it's the first death that's actually happened. I know Clint Malarchuk was a big incident back in the seventies and eighties. And that was just a rare situation and they wear neck guards, I believe. So it's one of those, you know, this happens and you enforce a law, then something else is going to happen. And before you know it, you know, your players are going to look like Robocop out there completely full of armor and not being able yeah. to move around and skate around the way that they naturally can. Yeah, but again, ask, if, if you're comfortable wearing one, then absolutely. Well, I was going to ask, um, you said you wouldn't use it. Is it because it does limit your ability to move? I don't really understand what it's made of or any of that stuff. Um, I can imagine Kevlar or something that's. I just, I remember when I, yeah, I remember when I we had it mandatory when we were younger, and it I didn't like I, I hate the feeling of stuff, especially sweaty stuff around my neck. It's just not comfortable. And not only that, even with the neck guard, there's still above and below the neck that you can. I mean, depends on the angle of the tilt of your head. If your head's tilted all the way back, and neck guard's not going to save under your chin. Same that's going to be said, but you know, about lower than the neck guard. So it's. The neck guards we had too was not Kevlar by any means. It was just flimsy. Like you could have rolled up a sock and and put it around your neck, and it was considered a neck guard. It was more of an inconvenience and a deterrent for me personally. Uh, if they made a proper neck guard, maybe that was part of the shoulder pads somehow, or I don't know how they would do it. I just to make something mandatory is like that. I think that should be left up to players players' choice. Because like I said, even if you have a say a two inch neck guard, that's going to, you know, limit your ability to look down at the puck, uh, maybe side to side, even depending on what it's made out of. And while that tragedy that did happen with Johnson, you know, we never want any of that to happen. It's almost so that there's part of like a nature of the game, not necessarily going out and slashing people's necks accidentally, you know, with a skate, but there is this level of risk in general by playing this game on skates and doing, you know, the, doing it the way that it is. So I'm curious if you could, like, do you have any suggestions on what could make the game safer without limiting that mobility? Is it about teaching guys what to do and not to do? 
guys just being aware of how they're, you know, hitting others or being playing defense? I mean, what, what do you think about the way that the game could be made safer um, in just a variety of ways? I think it's something similar to like with a high stick. You might not mean to high stick a guy, but as a player, you're responsible for your stick and where it goes. So even if you get hit uh, and then your stick, you know, happen, you're, you know, you hit against the boards and your, your body flies up against the boards and your, your stick while in your hand hits another player in the face and knocks all the jibs out. Well, technically you're still responsible for that stick. So the same should definitely be considered for body, you know, your legs. In that case, it was. The guy looked like he got, he got bumped a little bit, but not in a in a way that his leg should have kicked up that high in the air. Uh, usually, anyone that gets close to clipped on the neck or around the face, they're either on the ground or on their way to the ground while another player's leg is coming up, but no higher than someone's waist, usually. There are the odd occasions that, you know, freak accidents happen, which this Adam Johnson one is more likely that. But I think teaching, you know, people how to control their body functions and, and, and where they're, you know, flailing their legs and their arms, you know, because you are wearing essentially knives on your feet. And, you know, there's been well over a hundred years of hockey played and this is the first fatality that's, that I know of uh, from something like this. And it's one of those, yeah, you would think it would ha- happen more often, but the fact of the matter is it, it just doesn't. And it's also, you know, you do kind of realize that it is it is a possibility. You know, you forget about it because it happens so rarely, but almost the same could be said about football. And, you know, if you play football, there's a good chance you're going to get a concussion or you're a good chance yeah. you're going to have bad shoulders or knees. It's it's well aware to people that play it. Uh, and a lot of people don't have to deal with it, but a lot of people do. And I think it's one of those, that's what makes the games unplayable to the majority of people and only a certain group of people do because they're they're willing to literally put everything on the line to to play their sport and to play it at the best level that they can so nobody nobody thinks about it going in like is this gonna be my last shift am i gonna get kicked in the throat but you know that it is a possibility yeah and i think you know talking about this is kind of like the nature of the game or sports in general you know you're you could get hurt at any moment in it and, you know, hope, you know, you, the intention is never to have anyone maliciously, you know, tackle you incorrectly in football and give you a concussion or do something this similar when you're playing hockey, but freak accidents happen. And um, sometimes it's just something that's unavoidable and, and can't be, you know, nothing can be done about it. And so I appreciate you giving a little insight into that as a former player, Um, just because I've seen so much discussion going on in different groups and on different fan bases about net guards in general. So yeah, I think, I think ju- jumping to a net guard would be after, after one incident, jumping to a net guard, I think it would be a little bit premature, because yeah. with how fast the game is now, I'd be more concerned about people getting hit from behind or tripping up and going yeah. first on the boards and yeah. you know breaking their necks or becoming quadriplegics, paraplegics. That's mm-hmm. that's more likely to happen, and it yeah. doesn't happen as often because there's more respect on the ice. And if yeah. like with a little bit of fighting going out of the game, yeah. there's not as much respect given. Although the games I've watched, they, they you know the interactions between players have seemed you know for the most part respectful. Well, and like you said, the majority of the time that I would expect a like a slash to happen would be when you're trying to cover a puck over a bunch of people in the, you know, at the goal line or something or crashing into each other, not necessarily standing straight up and doing, you know, how that all happens. So, yeah, um, interesting perspective. I appreciate that. I know that your perspective is um, it goes a lot of other perspectives that I've read um, from players or people who are involved in the sport in general um, through a lot of different leagues. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to chat with you about today was um, this icon series that the Havoc has launched, um, I guess, celebrating 20 years of Havoc. They're going to be auctioning off your jersey. I'm just kind of curious about your thoughts about what that's like for you to kind of be considered now um, an icon and really the first one in this kind of series that they're doing over the season. Uh, absolutely amazing. You know, I, uh, I'm i still kind of – I just found out yesterday that uh, – well, I saw the write-up for it, and when I read Icon, it, uh, I'm still having trouble <laughs> trouble with that because it's it's such an honor and such a privilege, and to to be accepted like that in Huntsville too, it, it means the world to me. You know, we've we've done legend games for the last ten years, so you know, you, to be called a legend is pretty pretty special. But 
to be singled down to more of an icon, that's, uh, it's not something that's just, I'm proud of, but it's, I'm proud because my kid, when he saw it, he was absolutely just aghast about it because he's like, dad, you're an icon. I'm like, calm down. <laughs> but, but yes, I guess. So it's, it's a huge privilege and an honor for me to, uh, to be considered in that even. So are they, do you know if they're going to like auction it off and then like present it at a game? Is that what the plan is or? Are you just kind of uh, as far as I knew that I was told that they're going to auction off a jersey and then they're going to honor me for my career. So I know that they're auctioning the jersey, um, and yeah. I'm not sure if they're going to do it at at the game or if there is a ceremony or anything like that. Uh, I'm not I'm not quite sure on the details yet. Well, um, hopefully I'll get to stop by and say hi to you um, at that game. We try to make all the games as much as we can as a family. I really appreciate you stopping and chatting with us today for our podcast. You know, we've really enjoyed getting to get perspectives on current players, former players, everyone. I know for me personally, it's just a lot of fun to listen to um, people who have played the sport that they love so much reflect and reminisce on it. And so um, before I let you go, I'm just curious if you have any final thoughts about, you know, just your experience in hockey in general and kind of um, any advice you would give the team this year or things you would like for them to think. We've got some new players out there, some young ones that are kind of coming in on this year. Uh, what would you say to them? I'd say have faith in your systems, listen to your coaches and and really you know, let let the older players that have been there and, and done it, if you're a new guy, really let them bend your ear on, you know, how to carry yourself as a professional and how to get to that next level uh, and to just try to win every game as possible. Keep your fans happy, but keep your teammates happier. Luke, thank you so very much for chatting with us. I really appreciate it. The fans appreciate it. Our podcast appreciates it. Well, my pleasure. And hockey fans, until next time, keep reeking of Huntsville Havoc hockey. Stay sharp in the slot. We are looking forward to bringing you way more um, stories on former players and just the organization in general with the Huntsville Havoc. So until next time, we'll see you then. Look for the Reekin' Havoc power play every Tuesday during the season. It's a quick update on the previous weekend's results, along with the latest team news. More of the Reekin' Havoc podcast is coming up next. The Reekin' Havoc podcast. In June of 2005, our twin girls were delivered, Melissa and Catherine, and they were born 14 weeks early. Amy and Chris George talk about the Melissa George Neonatal Memorial Fund. They both weighed less than two pounds. Anne Catherine was 115 and Melissa was 19. Melissa lived for a couple of hours, but all of the medical technology in the world just could not have saved her. And she passed away while she was in the NICU. Chris realized pretty early that God had given us a platform that we could use to try to help people. So Chris and I started the Melissa George Neonatal Memorial Fund at Huntsville Hospital. To know that Melissa's name is living on, we, her legacy continues. And I think that was very important to Amy and I is why you know, the fund is named after her. Because for seven weeks, you know, Melissa fought so that Aunt Catherine had a chance to live. And uh, I think that we wouldn't be doing her name any justice if we didn't carry on because we know we wanted to honor her and honor her legacy and the community Huntsville Havoc, the community in Huntsville itself, they've rallied around that and it's been a wonderful support system for us and I think for a lot of families too when they see total strangers that are are giving. We're online at HuntsvilleHospitalFoundation.org. Click on the Melissa George Neonatal Memorial Fund and you can give that way. There's no donations too small and, and every dollar is just as important as the next one. And if you're giving, then we understand you're giving because you care. And that's what's important is that we've learned over the years that people give because they care. And you can volunteer. If you're interested in that, you can click on the volunteer tab to fill out an application. We are grateful for any type of support because we know that once we pull those dollars together, we can do big things. For more information on the Melissa George Neonatal Memorial Fund, visit HuntsvilleHospitalFoundation.org. Hey, this is Cheech Byers, and you're listening to the Recon Havoc Podcast. Coming up this week, the Havoc will host Knoxville tonight for Veterans Night and Roanoke on Friday for Outdoors Night before traveling to Evansville on Sunday. Be aware of the BBC's clear bag only policy for Havoc games. This includes no clutch purses, fanny packs, and diaper bags. Exceptions to the policy will be made for all medically necessary items after proper inspection. 
Keep in mind, too, that the VBC is a cashless venue. Concession stands or bars will not accept cash, although you can use it at Havoc merchandise stands and at the Chuckapuck table. For more information, plus a list of prohibited items, go to HuntsvilleHavoc.com and under the Fan Zone tab, click Security. Remember, if you're a season ticket holder, doors will open at 5.30 p.m. and remain open until puck drop. You can enter through the doors in the hallway adjacent to the Havoc front office and VBC box office. Become a member of Chaos Kids Club today. Download the Kids Club app for your iOS or Android device or online at chaoskidsclub.com. The Reek and Havoc Podcast. Do you own an annuity, either fixed rate, indexed, or variable? Are you paying high fees and getting low returns? If so, Annuity General would like you to have this free book to learn the pitfalls and mistakes of buying an annuity. The Annuity Do's and Don'ts for Baby Boomers contains the little-known truths about annuities, like how to help reduce your fees and increase retirement income. And it's free. That's right, free. As a bonus, we'll also throw in a free annuity rate report just for calling. We researched over 1,000 annuities and summarized rates and benefits from financially strong insurers. You get annuity do's and don'ts for baby boomers and the annuity rate report, both absolutely free for calling Annuity General today. Hurry, supplies are limited. Call now. 800-731-1467-800-731-1467-800-731-1467. That's 800-731-1467. For tickets, official Huntsville Havoc merchandise, and more, go to HuntsvilleHavoc.com. Visit our website at ReconHavoc.com, look for us on Facebook, Instagram, X, and Threads, and listen, follow, and subscribe to the Recon Havoc podcast on your favorite platform to keep up with the only weekly podcast covering the Huntsville Havoc, the Recon Havoc podcast.